I want to give a shout out to Aventus. Aventus is the world's leader in trade surveillance for digital assets. Trusted by Coinbase, Gemini, OSL, and many others, Aventus is also helping scores of other firms enter the crypto markets. For digital asset trade surveillance, think Aventus. And I also want to give a shout out to Kraken. With Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or even earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy-to-use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. No account registration is required. Download Exodus at exodus.com and you're ready to go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. Today we are joined by a very special guest, Anthony Scaramucci, founder of Skybridge. Anthony, you joined us back in mid-May of last year for our first conversation on this show. And at the time, it was right around when Paul Tudor Jones had first sort of indicated that he was entering the market. There was a lot of excitement around Bitcoin at the time, right before that massive run-up, and you were sort of plotting back then. Anyway, before we get into that, thanks for coming on. How have you been? Well, I'm great. It's great to be back on. Thank you, Frank. I follow you. I'm a huge fan. And back in May, uh, we were in the throes of the pandemic. Bitcoin obviously had gotten roughed up in March alongside of my portfolio, frankly, but I had been working on Bitcoin. And I don't know if I indicated this during that podcast, but I had purchased the URL skybridgebitcoin.com because I knew at some point we would be getting into Bitcoin. There were three things that I had on my list, Frank, that got me going on Bitcoin. The first one was the networking effect and the scalability pursuant to Medcalf's law. That was number one for me. And then the second thing was storage. I had to make sure that if I was going to buy, and right now Skybridge is sitting on today's prices at around 34000 about a half a billion dollars of Bitcoin. I had to make sure I could store it in a place that was safe and I didn't have to worry about my keys getting stolen and things like that. And then the third thing, which I would argue is worse than I would have thought, is regulation. If you had asked me back in May of last year, when are we going to have an ETF in the United States? I would have thought it would have been by now. If you had said to me, where's regulation going for Bitcoin in the US? I would have thought the United States wanting to maintain its mantleship, maintain its leadership in the world of finance, where we're literally the locus of the global financial system, I would have thought that the United States would have moved more quickly to embrace Bitcoin and other elements of DeFi. And so, one, we got what I thought network effect. We're at 125 million users on our way to a billion. Two, you can store it in places like Fidelity or NYDIG or Gemini quite safely. There's layers of insurance on there from Lloyd's of London, et cetera. So those things are good. those are the uh, that's the ambulance coming to take me away, Frank. You know, if yeah. Bitcoin drops below thirty, I have an ambulance on call. It just it just wheels me right out of here, puts me yeah. on a stretcher, takes me out of here. But 
But that last piece, I have to be totally candid with you to tell you that I'm surprised thus far about what's going on in the uh, regulation. I would have thought it would have been more benign, more friendly than it actually has been. Those are kind of the three things that got you from being interested in Bitcoin to actually investing across multiple funds, setting up a specific fund tied to Bitcoin. Yes. When we sort of think back on May or around the early stages of the pandemic, when you last came on, you guys were being gripped by the impacts of the pandemic on the market, specifically the structured credit market took a big hit, which was hard for you guys. Was what's happened with Bitcoin as bad as what happened then in terms of the reaction from maybe some of the LPs? I think it's interesting because, you know, the world of DeFi, which is so exciting to me, you took a trillion dollars out of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and a collection of cryptocurrencies in one month. The month of May was a brutal month. I actually think the month of May was probably the worst performing month in terms of a percentage decline over a one month period of time in Bitcoin itself. And yet there were no runs on the bank. There were no TARP money distributed. There was no Fed aggressive program. Just imagine if a trillion and a half dollars was ripped from the nation's banking system in terms of a capital loss, the type of commotion that would have happened. And so I think it speaks volumes to the strength of decentralized Mm -hmm. finance and the location of decentralized finance. When you have a central bank and you have regional and national banks tied to that central bank and you're operating with very high leverage, Bitcoin was operating with very high leverage and you see a collapse, uh, you see the entire economy, the stock market going to disarray. If anything, you didn't really see much there. So to me, I would say to you that Bitcoin's movement is less painful. If you're asking me about it from a business perspective, I would say it's more implied that there's going to be volatility. So therefore, the expectations are such. In structured finance, you have garbage in, garbage out models that Mm -hmm. tell you that you're at a 0.3 beta until you're at a 1.1 beta in the middle of a pandemic, you know, meaning that, you know, you can model low volatility, but then if you have a pandemic, a global investment crisis, all those models go by the wayside. It's like what Mike Tyson said about getting punched in the mouth. Plans go out, out of the wayside and you're going down alongside the market. So, you know, structured credit did rally back. I think the people that decided to stay with us were rewarded. We were up over 40% from our low, which was, you know, just dislocation, technical overselling. But I think that was way more painful, frankly, because the expectations are that there's no trap door in uh, structured finance. If you're buying Bitcoin, you're buying an early adopting digital asset that is mainstreaming. But right now, it is a toe in the water for people. It's two-ish percent of the world's population has a handle on Bitcoin. And so a very, very low saturation number. And anytime that you're arcing pursuant to Medcalf's law and you have low saturation numbers, you have high volatility and lots of fear and uncertainty and doubt. So that combination, I think, is sort of expected. So it's expectation versus uh, facts on the ground. You positioned it in the pitch to investors back in uh, maybe it was like October, December, that time period as digital gold, as gold 2.0, with some of the tailwinds being a restructuring of the 60-40 portfolio and 
negative interest rates representing this sort of existential threat to various types of investors. Do you still sort of view those as as tailwinds? I do, but I, can we, let's just delve into them a little bit because I think it's important yeah. for people to understand why do you have negative rates? Well, if rates are at one and a half percent too, and inflation is running at five, your real rates are minus three percent, and so that's telling you that you're in a deflationary situation. You would say, okay, well, how could you be in a deflationary situation? You just told me that you have inflation. Well, what I can tell you is if you give me money, I'm giving you less back in purchasing power a year from now. So your dollars are going to be worth less in terms of their purchasing power a year from now. And so that is deflationary, even though you have your running inflation right now. Okay, so that's a little bit hard for people to understand. I think that's a tailwind for Bitcoin, because I think what's happening is you're eroding people's faith in fiat currency. So we talked last May. It's, let's call it 12, 13 months. Well, in 12 or 13 months, we have 31% more dollars in volume in terms of M2. So the money supply has gone up by 31%. So if you're listening to this and you have dollar-based assets, you just got taxed. So pay close attention. Go look at your bank account. If there's $10,000 in it, it now has $9,000 worth of purchasing power. Or if you're going to buy a house or a collectible, you could be down 28%, frankly. You know, it's ranging from down five to down 28, depending on the asset that you're going to buy. And so they've cheapened the money. They're monetizing debt. They're printing money to do that. And they're cheapening the money. And it's causing a crisis of confidence. And so Bitcoin, to me, maybe it got a little ahead of itself at 65,000, lots of leverage in Bitcoin maybe the collapse of the hash rate in China, combined with Elon Musk's statements, caused a deleveraging. But I got to tell you, Bitcoin looks pretty anti-fragile to me. Uh, the fact that we were sitting at 18,000 when I started buying these coins in October, and we're at 34,000 right now. Just imagine, Frank, if you and I had done our podcast in October, I said, Frank, I'm buying Bitcoin at 18,000. And today it's at thirty-four thousand. We're both happy campers, yeah, because we saw prints at sixty-four thousand or sixty-five thousand. That people are like, oh, there was a big crash in Bitcoin. So I I get that, but I, I would ask people just to step back and do a zoom out of Bitcoin. Look at the chart. Look at the asymmetry of that chart, despite the near-term forty to sixty percent pullbacks. Zooming out. That is. The best advice you can give anyone you just zoom out look at the big picture well it certainly helps with my wrinkles frank so it should help with just about anything you know yeah zoom out. great patch back <laughs> so you make an interesting point which is i think a lot of skeptics would look at what bitcoin's doing right now and think all right well even the fed is saying that they're expecting higher inflation so why is bitcoin not responding i think your point would be and we can unpack this well it's not that inflation isn't a tailwind, but there's all these things happening on the other side. A lot of product leverage, bring it down. China, bring it down. Elon Musk, incessant tweeting, bring it down. Mobility of the mining community. Yeah. You know, miners being taken off the grid in China, boxes being shipped to Maryland and other parts of the world. You've got a whole host of things going on. But again, step back. If you bought it last year or you own it today, that's been pretty terrific, absolute return. 
the problem is, is that if you're buying it minute to minute or watching it minute to minute, it is absolutely the wrong asset for you because, you know, this is going to move the way Facebook, Amazon moved early on. Let's go to Amazon for a second. A a $10,000 investment in Amazon today, you put that money in its IPO on May 15, 1997. So 10,000 into Amazon, May 15, 1997 is now worth $21 million, $21,140,000 today, 24 years later. But you would have had to subject yourself, Frank, to 50% downdrafts at least eight or nine times. So if you didn't have the stomach for that and you got juked out of the position, you missed that ride. You missed that unbelievable ride as Amazon was arcing towards Medcalf's law and then ended up as it is today controlling 50-ish percent of the retail buying on the internet. But then in a sense, you're kind of telling two different stories here. One of store value, one of maybe it's not always going to be storing that same value, but you have that long-term sort of Metcalf's law increase there. Yes. So how do, how do you sort of communicate to investors, both of those being one and the same or sort of tied together? Well, you know, I would say that it's, becoming a store of value. I would say that if I look at its attributes, transferability, ease of use, portability, scarcity, all of those things are fitting what humankind would view as a store of value. Uh, But it's early adopted. You know, as an example, Amazon was not ready for prime time institutional investors 15 or 20 years ago, but it is today, you know, and so what ends up happening is you get this to a billion users. We're at 125 million users now. We think in four short years, you'll be at a billion. Then it does meet the store value test there. I think it becomes way less volatile as more people are saturated into the ownership. Now, the question is, at a billion users, it's probably worth $500,000 a coin. So, you know, why did you wait? Why didn't you at least participate? And again, you know, I love Michael Saylor, and he is a uh, intellectual mentor of mine, and he's all in on Bitcoin. I'm a financial advisor. I'm uh, somebody that's running a registered investment company. I'm recommending my clients one to five percent. You know, Michael's recommending one hundred and five percent, and I admire that. I admire his passion, but I'm telling you, I'm humble, and I know I could be wrong. I don't think I'm going to be. I don't think you're going to be, or Michael Saylor. But let's say that we are. If you've got 1% exposure to Bitcoin in your model portfolio and we're wrong, unless a Bitcoin trades to zero, I can actually prove to you it won't go to zero just because of what's going on in that network. But let's say it never scales. Well, you're no worse for the wear. But if I'm right and you go 10 to 1 or 14 to 1 on your 1% allocation, all of a sudden you've changed your portfolio. You've, you've created tremendous alpha, tremendous return for your clients without lots of risk. You know, and you know this, Frank, but it's worth repeating to your listeners, a 1% allocation to Bitcoin 10 years ago, 99% of your money in cash. So 1% in Bitcoin, everything else in cash, outperformed everything, outperformed the S&P 500, outperformed the micro caps. You pick the industry or the segment, 1% in Bitcoin, 99 in cash, outperformed everything with a ridiculously low sharp ratio. So so to me, it would be a misnomer not to own Bitcoin. Moreover, use that Amazon example. 
if this was 2009, 12 years after Amazon's birth, and you looked at Amazon's chart, you said, wow, I missed this. Look at it, it went straight up. I missed this. But yet if you bought the stock in 2009, you had a 64X return over the ensuing 12 years. So to me, it just gives you a sense for how early we are in Bitcoin. I'm happy you brought up Michael Saylor because, I mean, there's no other poster child, I think, for this movement of CFOs. Well, he's not a CFO, but regardless, this movement of CFOs kind of thinking about putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet, corporate treasuries doing so. He's among the most strongest advocates of this. But I've been wondering sort of like in the past few weeks with the volatility and the drawdown from 60 to 30, does that pump the brakes on any other publicly traded company making a similar move? I think it does. I think he's such a pioneer. He's on the frontier. Can a company like SpaceX private or a company like Tesla public own Bitcoin? Sure. Probably both have it on its balance sheet. Does Facebook maybe own some of it? I don't have any inside data that suggests it, but nothing would surprise me if a company like Facebook, a forward-thinking technological interface like that, said they owned it. Obviously, you know Square and PayPal are involved. But my experience in the last year since you and I spoke is that very few institutions own Bitcoin. The idea that institutions are coming into the game, or it's probably a true idea, but it's not realistic for right now, meaning they're not there yet. And when you get this level of volatility, you're probably causing a pause. Remember the number one axiomatic fact for an institution or someone that thinks like an institution, do not fire me, Frank. Okay. And you can't fire me if I don't make any decisions. I make a decision to go into Bitcoin and it drops 50%. That's fireable. You're not going to reward me that much if I buy Bitcoin, it goes up 200%. So therefore, I have to wait for Bitcoin to be more stable and more adapted before it becomes acceptable to me because my number one axiom when I come to work is do not fire me, Frank. Yeah, We have to wait on the institutions. This This will get scaled by individuals and by pioneers like Michael Saylor. Yeah. Saylor might turn out to be five, 10 years early. Who really knows? Well, you know, if Saylor is right based on his calculations and, you know, if you look at what El Salvador did and there's the potentiality now for three or four more countries to adopt a Bitcoin standard. uh, And if we continue to corrupt fiat currency to the magnitude that we're corrupting it, Bitcoin is incorruptible in its current configuration, the way it is decentralized, it's incorruptible. So if there's one hundred and fifty trillion dollars worth of valuable assets on earth and you're moving away from a fiat currency standard to something that's more universal and bitcoin represents that because of its decentralization then we're low on our numbers these three four five hundred thousand per coin projections are actually low you know sailor thinks they're going to be worth a couple of million dollars a coin each I want to give another shout out to Aventus. Aventus is the world's leading platform for digital asset trade surveillance and market risk. With some of the largest crypto exchanges and institutions in the world using Aventus to drive efficiencies in their regulatory operations. On June 22nd and the 23rd, Aventus and the Association for Digital Asset Markets will be co-hosting a premier virtual conference shining a light on digital asset markets 2021. 
Visit AventusSystems.com today to register for this event so you can hear from the key regulators and thought leaders in digital assets. Have to give a shout out to Kraken, one of our sponsors. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect to your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. Visit kraken.com slash scoop now to learn more or search Kraken in the App Store. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Exodus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone and interactive charts let you view the price history of a specific asset and your portfolio's performance over time. Sync your wallet across multiple devices to access your funds from anywhere. And maybe the best part, Exodus is integrated with Trezor Hardware Wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Download Exodus at exodus.com today. I want to double click on something you said, but as it pertains maybe to Skybridge, institutions have been slow to enter the market. So how do you sort of woo them in with your various products? How do you make the case? Well, I make the case because our core fund has a 5% at cost position. I tell these institutions that this is a safe way for you to get exposure. So if you're giving me a $10 million position, you have $500,000 in Bitcoin. If you're giving me a $100 million position, you have $5 million in Bitcoin. And if you're thinking about your multiple billion dollar portfolio, having $5 billion in Bitcoin in this diversified fund that I'm presenting to you is pretty safe. It's pretty face saving. If we're both right about Bitcoin, you are going to be rewarded. And if we're wrong, well, let's say you're only going to lose 5%. So you're not in any worse to wear. And I think that that has helped. I think we've clipped some large-scale Middle Eastern institutions, some university endowments with that notion. Are we getting to everybody? No. Is it going to be accepted and mainstreamed in the next three to six months? No. If you invite me on two years from now, will I be able to go through a list of accounts that own Bitcoin, that have gotten comfortable with Bitcoin story? And here's the great irony, Frank. This is like a lot of things in life. The higher the price the easier the adoption will be. If Bitcoin goes to $500 million a coin and it's a six and a half to $7 trillion market cap, so now it is closing in on gold, all of a sudden it becomes acceptable. The same way Amazon at 10 is not as easy to buy for an institution as Amazon at 3,000. So has it been easier? Was it easier to sort of pitch folks at 60 than it is now? Has it become a little bit more of a slug? It's a good question. You know, it's a really, really good question. Let me put that one back to you for a second. What's your, how do you feel about that? So I think that, I think it depends. I think on the CFO side, I think any publicly traded company that might've seen what Square, MicroStrategy and Tesla had done, who might've been considering it, that's completely off the table now. 
But the endowments seem to be making up for that and the momentum and DeFi and the payment use cases for Bitcoin seem to also be making up for that as well. So it's kind of like there's been a bit of a balancing act. So I wouldn't say it's like any less or any more. There's also like these large, seemingly opportunistic funds that also seem to be taking an interest in buying up the proverbial dip, so to speak. So on one side, you have the CFOs kind of pulling back, I think, in mass, and then some large funds trying to buy the dip and endowments as well, because who knows when you'll get 30K Bitcoin again. So I think it's it's not 100% one way or the other, but on your guys' side, I'd be interested to like know which client profile is more interested in, in Bitcoin 30 and which ones are less interested. Yeah, it's, it's, it looks, it's a good question. I think that um, I'm going to embarrass myself here by telling you that I don't have a good answer because I don't think we've reached the saturation point. And I would also say that uh, for Skybridge, I'm dealing with what I call the individual. So what do I mean by that, Frank? I've got individuals that are sized and scaled to be as big as an institution, but they have decision-making like an individual. So if I've got an individual friend of mine, he's worth a half a billion dollars, he's got $25 million in our fund. And so therefore, he's got a 1.250 million position in Bitcoin. He's a happy camper and he's making the decision on the fly. He's not sitting around with a bevy of consultants and board members. And so I would say our fund is a little bit of an outlier we're considered an institution because we've got seven, eight billion dollars under management, but we're really a collection of individuals, large scale families that have put our money with us. So I don't think we're the best. We don't have the best view of things. If again, if I'm sitting here with two years out and we're right about our projections, you and I will be able to name some very well known institutions that are in this alongside of us. Yes. And the next podcast will be eating steak. (laughs) So what about in terms of just the thesis? Has it changed at all to expand to ETH or DeFi? You know, obviously everybody kind of has their own journey down the rabbit hole. Well, yes, it has for us. So we, July 1st, we're launching a ETH, uh, so it's not an ETF. We're launching a private Ether fund, if you will, Ethereum fund. It will then will file for an ETF for Ethereum. Again, it's anybody's guess when those things will be going. I'm in a quiet period, so I'm not really allowed to discuss it, but I can say, which is public information, that we did file for an ETF related to Bitcoin. We also have a UIT with a company out of Wheaton, Illinois, called First Trust. And what is that UIT? It is a sleeve of digital assets, basically stocks, that are tied to the digital ecosystem. So what is in there? PayPal is in there. Square is in there. Some of the miners are in there. Bitfarm is in there. MicroStrategies is obviously in there because it's sort of a Bitcoin holding company. So we have 17 stocks that you can buy as an FA for your clients that will give your clients an instant shot in the arm of digital assets and exposure to the land of crypto. We're going to file an ETF on that today, actually, as we're speaking. Uh, We're making an announcement on an ETF for a digital innovation fund that has some great publicly traded assets that we think are geared related to ETH, related to Bitcoin, but also the other coins. You know, Coinbase is... uh, trading a lot of different coins. Coinbase is part of that portfolio, as an example. 
you know, we're, we're in the marketplace right now. And again, I'm saying this with all the qualifiers, not investment advice or anything that just point of information with BlockFi. We're doing, a, a, we're participating in that round that's being led by third point in BlockFi's new raise. And so we're participating in that as well. And, and our clients are, I think, going to be well served by owning a piece of BlockFi alongside of us. So, so yes, we have a yeah. full commitment to crypto. That's one of the biggest rocket ships in crypto right now. I mean, I think I had Zach Prince on the show 2019, months and months after he had raised like 50 or 52 in sort of debt capital from Galaxy. They were 40 people. I think they're on track to be close to a thousand by the end of the year. Yeah, listen, they're growing like a weed. And by the way, they had a great month. They, they printed $61 million worth of documented revenues in the month of May. So, you know, the markets were volatile. Crypto assets in general lost money, which affects them on the lending side. But they had record producing revenues because of the diversity of their business. So we're, we're committed, Brent. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time on this. I see the future. This is part of the future. It's our belief that it is. I want to be cautious with our investors only because they're preternaturally cautious. But I remind investors of a very famous Barron's Weekly newspaper front cover yeah. from 2009 that said Amazon.bomb. And are Amazon's days over when Amazon was having a rough sled after the 2008 financial crisis? And obviously, look at where Amazon is today. And so with a little bit of time and a little bit of perspective and some patience, I think people are going to be well rewarded. There's a topic that's been pretty interesting to me. I used to cover the young Wall Street beat at BI a few years ago. And you see all these headlines about the great sort of resignation, folks moving from Wall Street to crypto, investment banking, you know, juniors not getting compensated enough or working too long hours. This isn't really, it, it's kind of Bitcoin related, actually, if you think about it. But what's your sort of pulse on the state of Wall Street culture right now? And do you think that, and this is a leading question, but do you think it's sort of in trouble given all of these different dynamics, the sort of long hours and, you know, COVID kind of changing folks' paradigm about where they can work? Just something I, I thought you might have an opinion on. Well, look, I mean, you know, I'm sort of in the James Gorman camp. So people could be mad at me. I feel like you got to come to work. I'm here at work. I've got my staff here. Some of them are home. You can work remotely from time to time, but you know the culture requires everybody in the same room. It enhances the communication. It enhances people's drive. You know, I run the company. I'm the founder. People see me here 14, 15 hours a day working intensely. They either have to stay with me and work intensely or find another job. No more ties. Well, that's true. I think that we've lightened up a little bit on the uh, the clothing. I think we've lightened up on the dress code. I think that, to me, is a compromise. You know, people are more used to being dressed casually. People care less about that now. That's not to say that I won't wear a suit and tie on television or wear a suit and tie to certain meetings. But in the crypto space, I almost look like I'm an antique in a museum if I'm sitting there with a suit and tie on with these people, like, oh, that's a, that's a 20th century costume. You know, I want you to imagine a 17th century courtier from Versailles walking into your office, you know, with his 
gray wig on and his vestibule and stuff. You know, we sort of that we sort of got that going on with these suits at this point. So that kind of speaks to the question that was baked in there, which is how does Wall Street or more traditional firms, Morgan Stanley is a great example, fend off the talent war of attrition that we're seeing play out. I mean, if you have a firm like BlockFi ramping up hiring, how does how does sort of Morgan Stanley and others think? Well, ahead? I mean, I think in Morgan Stanley's case, I know a lot about that firm. I think they've done a good job of retaining their staff. They are meticulously well run, and you know, and they do things for their FAs now, where they're sort of creating retirement packages, which incentivizes the FAs to sit tight and not try to sell their books of businesses elsewhere. So I think those things they've got going well. I think they're probably more suited for my demographic. I see BlockFi and Coinbase as more like the Instagrams and Facebooks, meaning that's a millennial and younger demographic, whereas Fox News and CNN and MSNBC is for an older demographic. So Morgan Stanley is probably in that position, but I think they've done a very good job of managing the firm. They just bought E-Trade as an example, where there's, they're picking up a lot of millennial traffic there. So to me, it's a good point that you're bringing up. You have to adapt or die. And so I had a fund of funds business, had very good performance over the years. Uh, It's having a great year this year, obviously being propelled somewhat by crypto, by Bitcoin. But I would tell you that we have diversified so that we can capture that segment of the audience. You know, we've done secondaries here, which have included things like Klarna, Chime, we're going to be in the marketplace of BlockFi now. We're going to we we're about to close on Plaid. So to me, I want to be in a zip code where I can attract all demographics above, let's say, the age of 25 that have some coin that they want to make some investments that are smart, strategic, and loaded with growth. Kind of weaving yourself between Wall Street and this new burgeoning technology yes. crypto world. Yes, it's Bean Street, like on Balance Beam, right? <laughs> not not Bean, B-E-E-M. You know, it's like Beam Street. I'm walking that Balance Beam in between the old world and the new world, and I'm hoping to act as an ambassador to reduce the tension, the fear, the anxiety, the lack of knowledge related to DeFi crypto. Well, let's let's look at the old world for a second. You brought up Morgan Stanley. They they've kind of announced um, they're going to examine how they can unleash Bitcoin onto their wealthiest clients. Mm-hmm. How does Skybridge tap into that wealth channel? You know, so our our Bitcoin fund was a little small, frankly, because we just got it started in January. So they're using NYDIG and they're using places like Galaxy as an example. But in our core fund. We've got lots of money from Morgan Stanley. And in our, what I would call our UIT, this new digital asset portfolio that we put together, we're vending that at Morgan Stanley as well. So Morgan Stanley is a very big part of our business, as are the other wirehouses. So how do you ramp that up? Uh, It's a good question. I think the way we ramp that up is we have to continue to grow the assets of the Bitcoin fund. And so Hmm. you're going to catch 22, Frank. You could be your own. I'll just just buy some. Yeah, exactly. I got to send the fund documents to you. Okay. You'll you'll, you'll come in. I'm just saying you're going to catch 22 because you're going to grow the fund. You got to make it big enough so that places like Morgan Stanley will feel comfortable coming in. So we're probably six or 12 months away from doing that. What do you think, I guess, on like just 
the market side of things, what, what makes it the most difficult for a firm like Skybridge to interact with the crypto market structure? Or is it pretty well set up? We talked about this in the beginning. You know, you have the custodians um, that you need. You have the sort of accounting. Well, it's, getting, it's getting better, but I think it's, yeah. it's still the, uh, the fear of looking stupid. Yeah. Somebody told me that crypto. I worry about that every day with this mustache. Yeah, no, it's all right. You're looking like a good, you're looking like a good old fashioned 70s porn star with that mustache. And I want you to own it for the rest of your life. I don't think I can shave it. No, good. Good. It's almost like a mustache tattoo. But, you know, what I would say, Frank, is it's the stigma and the self-consciousness more than it is the technology or the ability to interface. Mm. So every firm can do what we did. But what about the embarrassment? I was told, and again, not me, but I'm using a rhetorical device. I was told that Bitcoin is a tulip bulb. I was told that Bitcoin was a mirage. I was told by Charlie Munger that it's the worst thing that's happened to our civilization. So if I own Bitcoin and something goes wrong, then there's a very large group of people that are going to tell me I told you so. And with that comes embarrassment and pain and potential job loss. And so, so what we have to do is we have to overcome that. We have to explain to people what it is, why it shouldn't worry them, why it's going to grow long term, why it's scaling. And, you know, my friend David Rubenstein said it better than me, but it's not written in stone anywhere that governments have to be the only issuer of currency, you know, and no one person. Somebody said to me, well, these are like whiskey receipts back prior to the whiskey rebellion, where, where the whiskey distilleries were handing out receipts to each other and then speculators were trading on those receipts. It's very, very different because uh, whiskey receipts are centralized. This is a decentralized protocol that is spreading the world and a result of which it's going to be very hard to control it, damp it, or attack it. I think that uh, we'll be sitting here a year from now. There'll still be skeptics. There'll still be people that are fence sitters, but there'll be slightly more people in the pool with us and a result of which the prices will be higher. And I just think this is one of those weird assets where the higher the prices go, the more people are going to be drawn into the pool, Frank. So let's zoom out. I want to be respectful of your time. Let's think about maybe the broader market right now and crypto specifically. But where do you think you're the most contrarian broader market? And then maybe we can zoom in on crypto. Well, the most contrarian stuff has been wrong. I mean, that's the irony. OK, so the most contrarian are the deep cyclicals, the low multiple value stocks. That's really where... If you wanted to be the ultimate contrarian, you would get there and you would say, well, the economy's opening and things are going to rotate out of growth into those stocks. But you've been wrong on that for 10 years if that's what your judgment was. And the reason is, is that you're getting year over year, consistent, steady, exponential growth from those behemoths. You know, Facebook just crossed a trillion dollars in market cap for the first time, as an example. Um, Amazon heading for $2 trillion. Microsoft at $2 trillion, Apple at $2 trillion. And so what happens is these monoliths take on this self-fulfilling prophecy. So, so to me, all I can tell people is we're not there yet, but imagine if we get there. Think of those numbers, Frank. Well, listen, Anthony, always appreciate you bringing the energy. We're going to We'll have you back on before another year, hopefully at some point. Right, well, I want, I want to do that. I want to do that. And uh, 
If you get any gray in that mustache, just let me know. I know how to take care of that for you. I'll be on the lure to psyop. I'm not necessarily an expert on longevity. I just have, an, have a way of looking at things from a cosmetic point of view that has longevity in it. Which might be in just... Other words, I'm, I'm slowly becoming Wayne Newton, Frank. That's, that's the point I was trying to make. Well, can you hit notes like Wayne? <laughs> that's the real question. No, I just want to look like him. <laughs> Well, Anthony, um, let everybody know, like, if obviously you're not too hard to find, but is there anything out there or, or a way for folks to get in touch with you? Uh, well, listen, I'm at, I'm at Scaramucci. You can DM me on Twitter. Um, easy to find. You go to Skybridge IR if you want to get a direct message to me. Always shows up in my inbox. And I respond to everybody. Anthony, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, brother. Be welcome.